One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives our lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the living and the dead. You then, why do you judge your brother or your sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It's written, As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge God. So then, each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Father in heaven, thank you for your goodness, that you are slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, visiting your tenderness and love to a thousand generations, yet by no means leaving the guilty unpunished, visiting the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. Lord, we fall on that mercy, and we beg you, Lord, to fill us with your Holy Spirit, enlightening us to the truth of who you are and how you have lavished this love on us. In Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Welcome, everybody. It's good to see you. Well, tonight is our first kind of, I guess, official night of fall. We had our vision day last week. It was wonderful. We talked about, we celebrated all the things God has done in our midst. We anticipated what we think he might be up to in the coming year, in the coming 12 months. And we pondered uh, freely and wonderfully in our minds how we might participate, how we might join in and worship more deeply here and serve and join a pastorate, yada, 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 all that stuff, and live generously with our time our talent, and our treasure. And I'm so excited now to enter into this part of ordinary time as, as Advent, which begins the first Sunday of December. You say, December, Jay, that seems so far away, but it's not. Walmart tells us that Halloween is almost here. Well, Halloween has almost been here since like August 1st, so surely Christmas will be here any moment. So I'm excited. March 2011, I am a deacon, I'm serving at Grace Anglican Church in Fleming Island, Florida, and I'm eagerly anticipating being ordained a priest. But all the rigmarole that you go through, the uh, MMPI, sort of are you crazy or not test, the marriage counseling, the, all the inventories and all the stuff that you go through, there's one final thing that, we, that I had to do, and there were two other companions of mine, two good friends. They remain close friends. We had to go before the bishop. Now, our bishop was, uh, at that time, a man named Terrell Glenn, and he was the rector or senior pastor of All Saints Church, sounds like a good name, in Pauley's Island, South Carolina. So it was that Tripp and Sam and I with our rector, uh, John Schuler, great guy, maybe you'll meet him one day, hopefully so, um, we rode north up to Pauley's Island, South Carolina, to meet Bishop Terrell. And each of us, you know, like boys before the principal's office, about to be in trouble, 
we sat outside the bishop's office in the nice, you know, colonial-style South Carolina furniture. And we met with Bishop Terrell. And I'll never forget one of the things that Bishop Terrell told me. We went outside and we walked the grounds of All Saints Pauly's Island, which is a church that's over 250 years old. You see, that church was established and organized even before the diocese of South Carolina was established. It is a very much a pre-American church in the sense, and it's a colonial-era church. And so we go out around, walk the grounds, and Terrell shows me this altar, a, a, a wooden table, or excuse me, a table like ours of wood, but this altar at All Saints Pauly's Island was made of stone. And he said, Jay, the most precious thing that you have in ministry is relationship. The most sacred space, the most significant thing that you have to build on is a relationship with another person. That really left an impression on me. I've always valued friendships and relationships. I've always, always valued being sociable and getting to know people and all that kind of stuff. But it reminded me of how sacred that space is. And that those are the, the raw materials that Jesus uses to build his church. And we talked about that last week, of how God and Christ is drawing people to himself, men and women, boys and girls, individuals and families, and all sorts of people to himself to build his church. But the core of that is relationship. That's the sacred space. And I want us to see tonight the psalm and, and St. Paul's message to the Romans, and most especially Jesus' parable of the wicked servant. I want us to see that in the context of relationship. Relationship with God, relationship one with another. And the first thing I want to draw your attention to is to really understand Forgiveness, which you might have already picked up as a theme of these readings, to understand forgiveness, first we have to understand who God is. And yes, we can understand who God is by reading the Bible. We can have hard facts and knowledge. But more importantly, when that knowledge slowly seeps down from our head into our heart, when it becomes part of our lived experience, when there's that sacred space of relationship created between the Almighty God who is enthroned in splendor and wonder and who in the palm of his hand holds not just our galaxy, but all the galaxies. The one whose brilliance in creation created solar eclipses that we enjoyed not long ago the one who created the microscopic cell. That God is the God with whom we have a relationship. And we understand who he is, and we look at the Psalms. Look at Psalm 103 in your bulletin in page 3. Some of you may have an image of God, even if you know it's not true, as an old man. You may think of Monty Python and the Holy Grail. The, when the cartoonish God with the, you know, the fake mouth, and he says, oh, quit groveling. I hate when you grovel. We laugh at that, and that's silly, and some of you may think that's irreverent that I just mentioned that. But where did you get those coconuts? Um, but I mention that because a lot of us, for better or worse, that's the image we have of God, of this distant deity 
who has no real interaction with our lives except that he's probably mean, we probably shouldn't do the thing that we really want to do, and he might not like us. He might tolerate our presence. But what does the psalmist say? The Lord is full of compassion and mercy, slow to anger and of great kindness. You know, when Moses wanted to see God, when he said, God, let me see your face, God said, well, no, one, no man can see me and live. But what I'll do is I'll hide you in this little cleft of a rock and I'll let my goodness pass before you and I'll proclaim my name. And so it's not just a, a coincidence that God says before Moses as, he, as his, not, not his front side, but his backside. So all Moses gets is this. Imagine if God was wearing a cassock and a surplus, which of course he probably would. And God proclaims the Lord, the Lord, a God slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, visiting covenant love to a thousand generations. In other words, of course, God can get angry, but he's slow to anger. The psalmist echoes that same formula, that same name proclaimed before Moses. When literally Moses, God's own presence passes before Moses. So God could have said anything. Think about it. If you're introducing yourself to somebody that you may never interact with again for a long, long time, how would you introduce yourself? I'm Jay and I live on Angle Ridge Road. I'm Jay and I'm the husband of Amy and father of four children owner of Andy, the dog? Would you talk about your character and your nature? I'm Jay, who cannot have a road trip without eating a package of Twizzlers. And when I do open the package of Twizzlers, I have to consume them immediately. Jay, the compulsive one. Jay, the almost OCD one. God says this to Moses, slow to anger abounding in loving kindness. Verse 9, He will not always accuse us, nor will He keep His anger forever. Again, God's real. And like us, He's not exactly like us, but similar to us, He can be angered. But He won't keep His anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our wickedness. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so is his mercy great upon those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our sins from us. As a father cares for his children, so does the Lord care for those who fear him. He will not accuse us forever. He will have mercy on us. As a father has mercy on those who fear him. So the Lord has mercy. Not all of us have positive images of a father. But God exemplifies and embodies and is that perfect essence of a father. Not treating us as our sins deserve. Not only that though, but look what St. Paul says to the church in Rome. Verse 7, go to page 2 on your bulletin. So we see God is slow to anger. 
He doesn't visit on his children the due fruits of their behavior. In other words, they don't, we don't get what we really deserve. Not only is he exceeding in kindness and goodness and mercy to us in ways that we can't comprehend. Again, remember, in context of relationship, the first thing that we have to do is we have to understand who God is. Not only that, though, but look at verse 7. For none of us lives to himself, St. Paul says, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be both the Lord of the dead and the living. In other words, no matter what you do, children, you're doing it unto the Lord. You are bounded by God's care and fatherly goodness over you. But there's also this element of judgment, is there not? As St. Paul says, don't judge the other for the weak conscience that they had. They can't eat the meat sacrificed to idols, or they can't celebrate the holiday, or vice versa. Don't judge them for that, because you are all living unto the Lord. You all will die unto God. For Christ Jesus, who both lived and died, is Lord of all. So there's this very real reality that God is slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. He removes our sins from us. He takes them from us if we'll let go of them, if we will but confess them. He takes them from us and removes them as far as the east is from the west. Did you know that those directions never touch? They're gone. Well, not gone. They were taken by Jesus. And we received forgiveness. So we have to understand who God is, that he is unbelievably kind, and he is our judge, that there are expectations that we will follow him, that we will live in this bounded life. He hymns us in behind and before. We will live in the reality that he has given to us. So we understand who he is, but we also have to understand how much we've been forgiven. Now, I don't know if there's a sickness that Americans, and particularly evangelical Americans, maybe can suffer more from than not understanding how much we've been forgiven. I've sat with men and women who have had lives of great turmoil and tragedy and great pain and wounding and shame, both that they've inflicted upon themselves and that others have inflicted upon them. And I see the tears that streak down their eyes because they are forgiven, and they know it. As Jesus said, the one who is forgiven much, has been forgiven much, loves much. But for a person like me who lived a pretty okay life, and I, well, I'm a, I'm, <laughs> it's me, it's Jay, I'm a good guy. How much really am I forgiven? I find this parable instructive, and I found it really violating to my conscience this week. Look with me at Matthew 18 on page 3 of your bulletin. 
We have to understand how much we've been forgiven. Then Peter came up and said to Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. Now just so you know that Peter wasn't just playing a game, this was an actual discussion among rabbis of the day. And all the rabbis had, you know, pooled their resources and decided, well, about three times. First time, forgive him. Second time, forgive him. Third time, ah, eh. move on. Let the shlemiel go be a shlemiel and you do your thing. So three times. So Peter says, hey, we're living in this new reality. I'm the rock that the church is going to be built on. I just walked on water and, oh, Jesus called me Satan too. Anyway, Jesus, how many times shall I forgive my brother? Three, four, five, six, seven times? It's a great question, Peter. And notice, as Jesus always does, he turns the table. He turns it back on Peter. And I don't know if when you hear this, he turns it on you. But man, alive. I felt this when I was reading this this week. Jesus said, verse 22, I do not say to you seven times, Peter, but 77 times. In other words, always forgive. Seven being the perfect number, the number of completion. Peter, forgive them 77 times, as many times as they sin against you. And if Peter or you or I had any objection, Jesus goes on. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. So get this in your mind. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now you think, well, 10,000 talents, that's not much. Well, a talent was the, the largest unit of measurement in this day. And in, the, in Greek culture, which is the language that this was written in, 10,000 was the highest numeral. So for you and me, think of the biggest number we can think of. A billion, 10 billion, 100 billion, Google, trillion, whatever. Just get that number in your mind, okay? I, I really want you to do that. Put that number in your head. And since this servant could not pay that debt, his master ordered him to be sold, not just him, but his wife and his children, to be sold and all that he had and that payment would be made. Verse 26, so the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Now do you realize how unrealistic that is? This servant is, this is an indentured servant, a bond servant, kind of like a slave. He is never going to be able to repay this king back. Ever. Ever, 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 ever. But he makes this unrealistic claim and begs him and implores him. I'll pay it back, verse 27. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. Wow. Can you imagine having that large of a debt and being threatened to be thrown in a debtor's prison? And not just you, but your family. If you're single, maybe your parents, your aging father or mother, your brothers, your siblings. So that somehow, way, the debt could be repaid. But it was flat impossible. And so when this servant begged, the master, the master had pity on him. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. 
but forgives us our wickedness. We must understand, friends, no matter how good a life we have lived, we have to understand how much we have been forgiven. So we understand who God is in the context of relationship. We understand how much we've been forgiven. And lastly, here's the imperative tonight. Forgive. Now I'm reading this passage, and I want to be very vulnerable with you. I'm reading this passage, and I'm thinking about a conversation that's going to happen with a particular person who has committed sin against me and many other people. And I'm like, man, it's going to go Matthew 18 on this guy. Because first, we, you know, first people talk to him, and then other people talk to him, and now it's going to go down. And I'm like, yeah, God, I love Matthew 18. You're like, I'm a terrible trash talker. But my son Josiah is a very good trash talker, and I learned that the other day while he was playing football. And I told him, I said, leave that talking on the field, not anywhere else. And then I'm reading this passage, and I realized, and how many times I've forgiven this person, but when I thought about that situation, I was ready to be like this wicked servant. Because what does the wicked servant do? He goes out and he finds somebody who owes him a hundred denarii, I believe it is what it is. The ratio of that is, think about the largest number that you could think of. What the servant owed the wicked servant, the person like me, was one six hundred thousandth of the debt that was owed to the king. And so this wicked servant, who was already forgiven the debt, who was already released, who had his life in front of him, who should have received this mercy that was lavished upon him, goes and finds someone that owes him a very small amount. And he grabs him, and he shakes him, and he throws him in prison. And when that servant says, please have mercy on me, have pity on me, the wicked servant has no mercy, has no pity, and will not forgive. And God said, Jay, will you really not forgive this person? And that forgiveness that I was withholding, that I was like, well, I've already exercised it on this day and on this day and on this day and on this day. But that forgiveness I still needed to engage in went from an encumbering burden. Went from, no, this is my consolation prize, God. Because this person has done this to me, I get this. This is my pound of flesh. That forgiveness went from an impediment that I realized that I was holding on to an open door. As I, in my heart, in my mind, I just told the Lord, all right, Lord, I forgive him. Let your mercy shine upon him as well. As that happened, it went from burden to freedom. Forgiveness is a door we're being invited to walk through. It's an action God is begging us to engage in. To let go. He will not leave the guilty unpunished. 
he proclaimed before Moses, visiting the sins of the fathers to the third and the fourth generation. But remember what St. Paul wrote to the church in Rome last week? Don't take vengeance into your own hands, but leave it to the Lord. So when you need to forgive somebody, no matter how grave and gross the sin against you that has been committed is, Forgive for the sake of your soul because of all that you've been forgiven, because of who God is. And remember that he is going to take care of the fruits of those actions. Whether you live or whether you die, you are the Lord's. And so Jesus ends with a cautionary, a chilling note to Peter to the disciples, to me, to all of us. So it will be if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Because you see what happened to the wicked servant. He was thrown into jail. And it says he was handed over the jailers, but the real Greek word there is torturers. Now, we're not sanctioning torture. That's not what we're saying. But what we are saying, what Jesus was saying in the, in the scenery of this parable what they would do is they would berate and get every dime out of they could out of that debtor. And so Jesus says, so it will be for those who do not forgive their brother from their heart. Remember, God is also judge. Now, it doesn't mean that he's looking to pick on somebody, but you know what it does mean? He will take care of it all in the end. When in a relationship with him, we understand who he is. When by the power of the Holy Spirit, we see how much we've been forgiven, we can simply forgive. No matter how small or how great the debt committed against us. Hmm. <clears throat> the rest of the story Bishop Terrell was rector or senior pastor of All Saints, Polly's Island. And what I didn't tell you is that that church had been in a several-year battle for its property. They had left the Episcopal Church. The Episcopal Church, of course, sued them. And there was a long, drawn-out legal battle. But because the church preceded the Diocese of South Carolina the church prevailed. They were allowed to keep their over 250-year-old property. But the altar that he showed me was very special. You see, remember, it was built out of stone. And he said, Jay, we've just spent a long, drawn-out season fighting. And if we're not careful, careful we're going to be fighting each other soon. And so what we did is we took these stones. Each family took a stone. And we used it in a special worship service as, a, as an Ebenezer. You remember that song, that hymn? As an altar, as a rock of remembrance before God to say, God, you have brought us thus far. You will carry us through the next season. And they took those stones and they assembled them into this beautiful altar. And he said, Jay, unless we preserve that space of relationship with one another, unless we learn to forgive not only the people that sued us, but unless we learn to forgive one another, all of the things that God has done in our midst will be for naught. 
Friends, don't let unforgiveness, don't let the enemy steal from you what God has been building in your family, generations before. Maybe he's been at work for as many as 250 years. To be sure, he's been at work in you from time immemorial, putting you together in your mother's womb, fearfully and wonderfully made. Three things. Don't forget how good God is. You may have forgotten that, as I did this week, reading this passage. Don't forget how deeply you have been forgiven. You may have forgotten that. And lastly, there might be somebody that you need to forgive. You don't have to make a big scene out of it, but there might be a person that you need to forgive. Don't let anything hold you back. Forgiving others is not all can None must, and some will. It's an absolute joy and delight to do. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness to us that models the lavish love you've poured out on us. Lord, against all odds, and when the world would, would say, exact your vengeance, we choose to forgive. We pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen.